we are going to talk over the next few weeks about the last day in the life of Jesus. Okay, um, I, I thought about this a couple of years ago. Susan and I uh, used to watch a show called 24, um, and some of you know that show. 24 was a show that uh, it followed minute by minute for 24 hours what happens in a full day. Okay, I was reading through the Gospel of John one time when I realized that basically from John 13 to the end of the book, uh, until through the crucifixion at least, is like an episode of 24. We have, uh, they, they call it telescoping. They, they, uh, John starts, and the first 12 chapters of the book of John covers, uh, well, from eternity past until Jesus' last week of life. And then you get to chapter 13, and the last chapters focus on that crucifixion day and the resurrection. And so it goes from this huge, it's almost like somebody's writing your biography, and the first half of it is on your first 40 years of life, and then the last half is on three days. That's the way the book of John is, and so you have almost this telescoping down. And what got me thinking about it is, um, these were the last 24 hours Jesus would spend before his crucifixion. Now, if you could know, would you want to know when your death was going to happen? If you could know a day that you were going to die, would you want to know? How many of you say yes? You you want to know? You get the opportunity to make a few things right? Okay, so how many would definitely not want to know? All right, somebody tell me why you don't want to know. Because you don't want to know, right? I don't, I don't want to think about it. Some people, I, there's, an, there's a place on the Internet you can go and find out your death date. Did you know that? And so you put in, you put in some information for them, and then you tell them whether you are normal, optimistic, or pessimistic, all right? They even have one for people that are sadistic, all right? So I put in normal, and just in case y'all are wanting to know when you can send flowers, apparently my death date in a normal time is Monday, November 15th, 2049. I'll be 73 years old, and I will be upset because I did not make it to 2050. I will miss it by a month, all right? If I'm pessimistic, it says that it would be September the 10th, 2032, 56 years old. If I'm optimistic, it tells me I get to live to 2067 at the age of 91. Now, this may, yeah, and it told me to, if I wanted to increase that my BMI needed to be better, which I did not appreciate being told that by a computer. My BMI, my body mass index need to be a little better. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not terrible, but I'm not great. And, uh, and I needed to continue not smoking, so I'm going to continue not to do that. Um, but what if, you, what if you knew it was tomorrow? One day... 24 hours, 1,440 minutes, 
86,400 seconds, you've got 24 hours to live. You'd be sad. <laughs> well, I don't know that you, I don't know, I, I don't know that you would purposely say, i got to change a bunch of stuff, because I don't know that you'd have time. I think you would focus on what's most important to you. I mean, if you, if you, if we, if I handed out sheets and we knew for sure, whatever, however we know, that tomorrow there's going to be a catastrophe that wipes out all of North Middle Tennessee, and so we have 24 hours. Don't you think there would be much more focus? I mean, many of you would, some of you would get up and leave right now. Not many of us would would worry about what they did on American Idol tonight or what the scores of the games were today or what our projects are for two weeks from now. Right? And if you think about it, Jesus knew, didn't he? Look at John chapter 13. If you've got your Bible, turn to John 13. We're going to be in John for the next three weeks. And if Jesus knew about it, don't you think that the priorities of Jesus would come to the forefront if he knew he had 24 hours left on this earth? It, it tells us in John chapter 13, verse 1, that it was just before the Passover feast. Then here's the second part. This is, it, this is important. It tells us three things Jesus knew. First of all, he knew the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He knew his time was up. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. Secondly, he knew, it tells us in verses 3 and following, or 2 and following, that Judas had agreed to betray him and was about to do it. And thirdly, he knew that the Father had put everything under his control. So here's what he knows. His time is up. The betrayal is about to happen. And he has the power to do anything about it he wants to do. He's got 24 hours. Here's three things he did. And this is what we're going to focus on, one each week. First of all, we're going to talk about this tonight. He spent time in fellowship with close friends. Secondly, we're going to talk about this next week. He prayed and submitted to God's will, not his own. And thirdly, he surrendered his life for a higher cause. And so what we have in these few things is what it took or what it was like to spend 24 hours with Jesus. Let's read chapter 13, verses 1. We're going to go down through some of that. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. A better translation that probably is, he now showed him his love to the end. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot. Uh, interesting word there, prompted, is, is actually the word that was used for hurling arrows or darts. You may remember in uh, Ephesians when it talks about putting on the armor of God, it says that we have the shield of faith so that we might ward off what? The fiery arrows or darts of the enemy, of the devil. What it says here in chapter chapter 13, verse 2, is one of those darts had found its mark. 
and Judas had agreed to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus decides in this last 24 hours that the first thing he wants to do is to spend some quality time with these 12 guys that he has trained and to give them a farewell message. This August, I will have been in ministry officially full-time for 10 years, my 10-year ministry anniversary. In that 10 years, I've only had to say goodbye to one church. And I don't have any intentions or look forward to having to do it ever again. The truth is, when God called me here, He called me away from a group of people I had invested six years of my life into. That had come like family to me. People that, as you leave, you say all kinds of things. Well, we're going to stay close, and we talk occasionally to some of them. There's some that I haven't spoken with since I left Ripley. It's just the nature of life. Jesus is giving us in verses, starting in chapter 13, his farewell address to these guys that he invested his life in. He's not the only farewell address in Scripture. Anybody know anybody else that gives a farewell address in Scripture? Moses does and I mean, the whole book of Deuteronomy is in some ways a farewell address, but specifically in 31 through 33, that's Moses' farewell address. Nobody nobody else? The guy that followed Moses did too. Joshua did, 23 and 24. And that passage is one of those classic statements, you choose you this day whom you will serve. Paul, in Acts 20, calls together the elders and has this moment before he goes to Rome of giving a farewell message to them. And while all of them gave farewell discourses, Jesus adds a significant element in an object lesson to the guys in their last moment. The book of John is divided in the first 12 chapters. Scholars call it the book of signs because it's sign after sign of who Jesus is. It's I am statements about who he declares to be. And then you get to chapter 13 and you see him decide that he's going to spend some time with these guys. It's interesting because the first 12 chapters focus on Jesus' ministry to the world. How he focuses on his ministry to the other Jews. And then it's as this 24-hour period closes in, he wants to spend the last little bit with his friends. It's, you know, being a pastor, um, there are people that know that the end is near. And families that know that the end is near. And there's that phrase that as a pastor you know signals that the end is probably near. It's when they call in the family. Pastor, I just want you to know they've called in the family. Well, Jesus, in some ways, is calling in his family. He's calling these guys together, and he's going to spend some time with them, and yet he's not going to just say, I love you, good to have you, let's remember all that we did. He wants a very specific moment to not only tell them how he feels, but to demonstrate it and then to teach them how to take the message on after he goes. 
it's interesting because the first 12 chapters, what often happens is there will be a special event and then Jesus will unpack the meaning for everybody. This is what that meant. Chapter 13 starts this place where he starts to unpack the meaning of what is about to happen. He starts to show them the meaning of what's about to happen. Now, the reason for that is pretty plain. Because once he's dead on the cross, he can't explain it to them. And they need something to keep them going until the resurrection. Let's remember where we are here. Jesus entered Jerusalem on Sunday. Monday, he cleansed the temple. He cleans it out. Tuesday was a day of conflict. The religious leaders are trying everything they can do to trick him, to trip him up, to get him arrested. Wednesday seems to be a day of rest. And then we come to Thursday. He's in the upper room with his disciples, and they're preparing for the big Passover feast. The Bible tells us that he knew his hour was come. The book of John has all of these mentions of the hour. In chapter 2, verse 4, it says that when Jesus' mom says, hey, can you do some miracle here? We need some wine. Remember that, right? All we got is water. Can you do something about that, Jesus? And he says what? Why? He says, first of all, he says, you know, what sounds like it's disrespectful. Woman, why are you bothering me? But that's, in his day, meant differently than that. But then he says, my time has not yet come. In chapter 7, verse 30, he says, the hour has not yet come. In chapter 8, verse 20, he says, the hour has not yet come. In chapter 12, however, verse 23, he says, the hour is almost here. And in chapter 13, verse 1, he says, the hour has come. So he knew it was the time. He knew Judas would betray him. And finally, Jesus knew that the Father had given him all things. That he had control of his life. Now, the truth is, most of us have much less control on our own lives than we ever realize. Anybody see the storm we had a couple of days ago? We were in the safest place in Goodlettsville. The basement of this building. Concrete bunker is what it becomes, all right? And we were in the basement of this building. Well, most of us were in the basement of this building in a safe place. There were one of two of us who will remain nameless, Alan, who were out looking at the storm. Huh? And then came back there just bewildered that the storm had blown the doors open. Well, it's because you were open them. What do you... we, we had people. It was an interesting day because we ended up having sheltering a couple of people that just came under our underpass because they were trying to play, find a place to get off the road. It's in those moments that we realize that we have very little control ultimately on our own lives. Those people in Japan, no control. We can't build earthquake-proof buildings for those kind of earthquakes. But Jesus had full control of his life. That's important. It's more important next week Because next week we're going to talk about that he gave up that control to do the will of the Father. But he had control of his life. And yet what he chose to do was to demonstrate the fullness of his love to these 12 guys. Washing their feet was something that accomplished multiple things. It showed the disciples how much He loved them. It was a symbol of the cleansing that would come in the cross. 
and it was an example for them to follow. First thing is, it was a display of love for his disciples. Jesus knew they had a competitive spirit. How did he know they had a competitive spirit among them as disciples? Yeah, they argued about who was going to be closest to him, who was going to be the man. Who Can we sit? They, he, had, he had mom's petitioning for their sons to sit on the right and left hand. And who's going to sit where, Jesus? And are my sons in the cabinet? Where are they in the cabinet? Who's going to be your secretary of interior? Who's going to be your treasurer? We helped get you to this place, Jesus. What's going to be our reward? Even at the Last Supper, they're arguing about who's the greatest. He knew there was a competitive spirit in him. And so he just stands up, takes off his outer garment, wraps around himself a towel, and picks up a basin to start washing their feet. Now, most of us don't have a good picture of what it looked like when they ate. We, we're used to tables being about here, sitting in a chair and eating. Their tables would have been almost on the floor. Most of the time you ate, you had a pillow or something under your left elbow. You would lean on your left elbow. You would put your legs away from the table, and you would eat with your face right at the table. Part of the reason for that was they didn't have vacuum cleaners. Or in our house, a dog, Right? So you didn't, you didn't, you had dirt. And so it wasn't as big of a deal, but they, they had their faces right over, right next to the table. Um, and so you had that happening. And so as they would sit and begin to eat, they just, they're starting to eat. They've all got their feet out, and nobody's thought, hey, none of us washed each other's feet. Now, before we get on to them too much, that wasn't something they probably should have thought because that wasn't a job that anybody wanted to do. I mean, what it really happens here is when he takes off his outer clothing, when he wraps the towel around him, he is literally dressing himself as a slave. In fact, he's about to do something lower than a slave because in Jewish society, even slaves were not required to wash feet. If you were a Jewish slave, you did not have to wash feet. It was considered too menial even for a slave. There's an interesting love story in the Jewish tradition. It's between a guy whose name was Joseph and his wife who was Azanoth. Azanoth wanted to wash her husband's feet. And he wouldn't allow it. In this love story, he won't allow it. And he says, no, I'm going to go get a maidservant. And she looks at him and says, if I am to be your wife, then your feet are my feet and your hands are my hands and no other woman shall ever wash your feet again. And all of the Jewish women swooned when they heard that. It was romantic love story. In Jewish literature, whenever someone washes someone's feet, whether it's a wife washing a husband's feet, whether it's a student washing a teacher, whether it's a child washing a parent, It is always an act of extreme devotion and love. And here's the deal. It's never the husband washing the wife. It's never never the teacher washing the student. It's never the parent washing the child. Because in their society, you would never wash an inferior's feet. And yet, the king... Of all kings, the Lord 
of all lords, the creator of the universe, God Almighty, takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around himself, and in great devotion begins to wash their feet. Makes you think of Philippians 2 a little differently. He was in the very nature of God, and yet he made himself nothing. Here's an interesting thing that I think this shows is how the Trinity itself works. Um, I'm beginning to read a book by Tim Keller. Some of you went through The Reason for God with Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York City. He's written a book called The King's Cross, and it looks at the book of Mark, not John, but the book of Mark. And he starts it off, which he does this a little bit in The Reason for God, talking about the dance of God, that the Trinity is always circling one another, glorifying one another, never in it for themselves. And he says in the book that when you're selfish, you're a stationary life because you want everything to revolve around you. And whatever else being selfish is, it becomes boring because stationary always is boring. And that God is the opposite and that you almost see. And he uses the example in Mark of when Jesus is baptized and he comes up and you hear the voice from heaven and it says the spirit descends like a dove. Well, you know that uh, here he mentions this in there that the only other time in Jewish tradition a dove is associated with the spirit is in an interpretation of the Jewish rabbis of creation. When it says the spirit of God was hovering and they say, like a dove over the face of the earth. And so he says what happens is it's almost as if when Jesus comes out of that water in baptism, the Father and the Spirit are so excited to be a part of that moment that God announces and the Spirit has to come. Because they're encouraging, rejoicing in. And that what God is doing with us is he is inviting us into that dance, into that motion centering our lives around others instead of ourselves. And what Jesus does here is he shows him the ultimate act of love is that he bends down and washes their feet. There is a Malaysian proverb that says, that that makes this even more astounding. And it's one of those that we know is true, even if we don't say it this way. It says, the fuller the ear is of rice grain, the lower it bends. The greater it is, the lower it becomes. I mean, what you have in Jesus is the greatest of all, bending down to the form of a slave. One pastor has said this, it was like Jesus, the great I am, took the place of a servant. He who had all things in his hands picked up a towel. The Lord and Master served his followers. We, like the disciples, need that lesson on humility. Church is often filled with the spirit of competition, with believers trying to vie for attention and seeing who has the best criticism. Andrew Murray said, The lack of humility is sufficient explanation of every defect and failure of the Christian church. Jesus served his disciples because he loved them. Now, there is no doubt in my mind that when he did, they were all embarrassed. But I don't think at the moment... Any of them thought it was their personal fault. I still think that spirit of, well, Thomas should have got up and done that. Well, that, that is what Simon should have been about. 
not. I should have done that. And here's the thing. I don't think any of them in that room, from what we know of them, would have had a problem washing Jesus' feet. But I think most of them in that room would have had a problem washing each other. Jesus just wanted to show his love. Now, most of them, in their embarrassment, can't speak a word. There is an exception, right? There's always an exception. Who speaks up? Peter, right? He came to Simon Peter and he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Now, that is what we like to call in the Baptist church the sanitized version of what Peter said. That makes it sound real nice. Lord, you're not going to wash my feet, are you? That's not what Peter said. In the original Greek, what Peter basically says is, you shall by no means ever wash my feet. Never, never, never get away. That's a little different tone, right? I mean, in the NIV, it sounds like a polite question. Surely, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet also. And that's why the uh, Jesus kind of sounds, his response is like, you don't even know what I'm doing, Peter. But Peter's like, you're not washing my feet, Jesus. It's not going to happen. Jesus then takes this, not just from an act of love, but to a symbol of the saving power that's going to happen. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus says, you don't realize what I'm about to do, but later you'll understand. No, never wash my feet, Jesus. Get away. Jesus says, unless I wash you, Peter, you have no part with me. Now, here's the interesting thing. The word part with me there is a word that has to do with inheritance. It is actually the same word that's used in the Old Testament when they divide up the land and they give each tribe their part. So he basically says, if I don't do this, you're not part of my kingdom. You're not part of who I'm about. Now, Peter obviously understands some kind of eschatological reference because Peter then goes from, Lord, you can't even come close to me, says, then, Lord, don't just wash my feet, but my hands and my head and whatever else. Give me a bath, Lord. I want to be all in. And Jesus kind of gives this weird kind of thing that says, a person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. Now, I understand that with two boys sometimes. Sometimes they take baths and they don't get everything clean. Did you wash your ears? Yes. Did you wash your face? Yes. Then why are there two black streaks coming down? Did you wash your, your hands? Absolutely. Then why can I wipe off dirt from your fingernail? You know what I mean? Boys, we said this a few weeks ago, boys are magnetically attracted to dirt. Okay? So you read that, you th- that's not what he means. There have been a couple of ways that they've interpreted this. The, the best way to interpret this probably is that what Jesus is saying is, I'm telling you about a cleansing that will come that will wipe you completely clean, but there will become moments in your life when you'll also need to confess and bring some things back to me to be cleansed again. Now, let me tell you how that works. In a practical sense, he's telling Peter, if you just had a bath and you take a five-minute walk down the street and your feet get dirty, you don't need to take a bath again. You can just wash your feet off. In a theological sense, what he's saying is, 
as believers, when we accept the Lord Jesus as our Savior, He has washed us completely clean of our sin. But that doesn't mean we don't mess up sometimes. And it's not that we are no longer part of His family, but that we have our fellowship hindered because of the dirt that we've accumulated. Um, Somebody tells the the story uh, that happens with the, the Old Testament priesthood. The Old Testament priesthood was that when they were consecrated to be priests, they were bathed all over. You see that in Exodus 29. And that experience was never repeated again. They never had to be cleaned all over again. Yet daily in their ministry, they would have to wash their hands and feet at the brass lever in the courtyard to make sure that they were ready to enter the holy place. Um, Another real modern example is this. When I had to go do hospital visits, I have always taken a shower recently. Now, not in the last ten minutes, but that morning, right? And when I get to the hospital and I get ready to go into somebody's hotel room, those real nice hotel rooms, their hospital room, I always do something right before I enter because they have those hand sanitizers sitting outside the room now. I just put a little hand sanitizer on and I go in. I don't need a whole body body wash. I just need my hands. I go in, I pray with them, and then the first thing I do on my way out, I do that again. Now, here's the crazy thing. I'll do that, and then and sometimes in the same hospital, I'll walk down the hall, get on an elevator, go down a floor, go over to another room, and before I go into the next room, I'll cleanse my hands a little bit and go in. It's not because my whole body's dirty. I'm just trying to make sure I'm clean, ready to go. What Jesus is telling Peter here is that we all, when we accept him, are going to be saved and cleansed. But that doesn't mean in daily life when we mess up, we don't have to bring those back to the Lord and say, because of my fellowship with you, I want to be right in your presence. If we permit unconfessed sin in our lives, we hinder our walk with the Lord. Someone has said this, individuals who have been cleansed by Christ's atoning work will doubtless need to have subsequent sins washed away. But the fundamental cleansing can never be repeated. And so that's what he tells Peter. What he's saying there is, you've been washed. Now there's also this little tidbit towards the end when he says, that John gives this explanation in verse 11. But he also knew who was going to betray him. And that's why he said not everyone was clean. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus wash everybody's feet in that room? As best we can tell from Scripture. Yes. No, Judas is there. He's still there. We'll talk about that in a minute, too. So it means that just because he washed their feet, or they let him wash, didn't mean that their hearts were right. It goes to show you that external stuff doesn't always make a difference. You can show everything good, but if your heart's not right, it doesn't matter. Now, here's the last thing. Washing their feet was also a model of Christian conduct. Jesus then looks at him and says, do you know what I've just done for you? And before any of them can answer and ruin the moment, Jesus answers for them in verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Anybody here ever been a part of a foot washing service? How many? A few of us. 
I've been a part of four. Um, most of us who grew up in Southern Baptist churches, we don't. There are Baptists that wash feet regularly. Part of the reason Southern Baptists don't do any foot washings anymore is because there are Baptists that wash them regularly, and we can't be like them. Um, I mean, just honestly, truth. Um, I don't think that Scripture teaches we have to. I can tell you the four times that I've been a part of they've been meaningful. Only one of those four times has ever been in a sanctuary of a Southern Baptist church, and that was because I did it. I set it up. We were doing a special service, and um, I washed someone else's feet. Um, and so it's not something we do in churches a lot. Um, I, I had a, a youth mission trip we were going on. We washed each other's feet before we went. First time our church had ever taken a youth mission trip, and it was one of those moments. Another uh, time we washed feet were uh, we were training to do cross point. I was a camp pastor. We were training to do that. The most meaningful time, though, wasn't any of those times. It was last year in Brazil. On the last night, we always do a celebration service, and it is our opportunity to take what has happened, celebrate what God has done, and turn the ministry completely back over to the local church. Say, now it's your turn to run with it. We invite tons of people. I speak usually, or someone speaks from America, but then the pastor from Brazil speaks, and it literally is almost like a handing of the baton. Take it. Here it is. This is we've now done some evangelistic work that God is working in a major way, and God is going to continue this work through this church, and we want you all to be a part of that. It's that kind of thing. And so last year we did this thing, and we, I, I preached. We invited people to come and accept the Lord. People came and accepted the Lord. It was a, a great moment. They went back and did counseling. The uh, Brazil praise team came back out. They started doing some more praise and worship. They had this other group come up and start doing some interpretive movement. So we were finishing it out, and then suddenly the service took a little turn, and they started to continue the service. Well, I mean, in Brazil, they don't care what time the service ends. There are no clocks on the wall in Brazil. Ms. Pat, nobody pats their watch in Brazil. They don't care. And so with it, well, we're here for a little while longer. That'd be all right. You know, the bus is going to wait on us. They're not going anywhere. This is our last night, so you're not really, you know, I mean, you just, you just go with the flow. Well, suddenly, the mood of it took, because usually they end on a very high note. I mean, Miss Carol, high, dancing, having a good time, celebration. We'll see you next week. I mean, and you're pumped up. It, it took a note. They started playing slower music. And then through an interpreter, our interpreters kind of around us, they said, they just said they have one more gift for our American friend. And suddenly, from behind this curtain, about 40 of their church members walk out with a water basin. And individually, they go to each one of us. And they begin to wash our feet. One of the things that I learned, one of the things I learned there was how difficult it is sometimes for me to let other people serve me. My first thought was, well, if they've miscounted and there's one person that gets left out, I hope it's me. You know, I'm okay with that. Uh, not because I didn't want my feet washed. You just, you know, it's it's a very personal thing. I almost felt like Peter here. You don't have, you don't have, you don't have to do that. The second thing I realized is, and this was from somebody that was having my feet washed, the sheer humility it takes to wash someone else's feet. And what Jesus was showing them was, 
as king of the universe. He did not consider any task too small or too menial for him. And then he says to them, If I will wash your feet, what excuse do you have for not serving one another? Here's the thing that I thought last night. We did bridge ministry last night. Twenty of us went down to the bridge ministry. It was a great night. Um, all kinds of things. You know, we, we had different team pe- doing different things. Um, our, we, we've started a Sunday school class, and this is the challenge that I have for you all that have Sunday school classes. We had 100% participation in our Sunday school class. Now, there are only three couples, but we had 100% participation. So small. We just started it, all right? We had 100% participation, all right? They, their job, the ladies' job, was to, were to be hospitality people. So as the homeless were getting their food and eating their food, they were taking their plates to them. They were helping them carry things. They were helping them get settled. We had another group of guys that their job was at the end of the night, they were handing food out to the homeless as they left. Another group of girls, that as they were left, they were handing out clothing to the homeless as they left. Uh, Coat and I were on the prayer team. Um, we get typecast as prayer team people, which I was excited about. If people, they had an invitation at the end of the service. If people came forward, I was going to be able to counsel them, talk with them, pray with them. Um, I, I didn't get an opportunity to do that last night, but I was available for that. So we had all of these service going. And as I was studying, finishing up studying today, this thought came into mind. It's much easier to do what we did last night than to serve the people that I'm around all the time. It's much easier to go down there and serve than for us as church members to serve one another. And it's really a lot easier to do that than to wash the feet of an enemy. And what Jesus did here was he washed 12 guys' feet. One of which he knew in his heart had already agreed to betray him. And so the question becomes, if the king of all kings can stoop to wash the feet of someone who's about to betray him, what excuse do we have for not serving one another. And the question I want you to ask is, who in your life are you supposed to be serving? And be real practical and real close to home. You may have heard the name of Robertson McQuilkin. Robertson McQuilkin was a, the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. Robertson McQuilkin was... Um, well-respected scholar, theologian, had people coming to his school, was building this great school. In the mid-80s, his wife Muriel began to develop Alzheimer's. And it began to quickly deteriorate. And in 1990, Robertson McQuilkin decided that what he needed to do was to resign from his post as president. He was still a young man. He wasn't at retirement age because he had to take care of his wife. He stood up in front of the student body and he gave a speech about why he was quitting. And we don't have a video of that speech, but we do have the audio. Tonight, some people have put together video over the top of it. It's not a great video, but you can hear it and see it. I want to show it to you. Then I want to talk to you about why I played it now and not during a marriage talk. All right? Dan, are we ready? Okay. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions. 
But uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me, and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health till death do us part and I'm a man of my word but as I have said I don't know with this group but I've said publicly it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible so if I cared for her for 40 years I'd still be in debt However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. He, he cared for his wife, Muriel, for 13 more years until she passed away. And there was a statement in there he made that I think would be the statement Jesus would make. And it paraphrased as this, washing the feet of his disciples that night was not a chore. It was an honor. Sometimes people are attached, come to this story, and they're almost like, well, poor Jesus, he had to do it because nobody else would. It was an honor for him and a joy. What I love about the story about Robertson McQuilkin and why I played it tonight is because it's an example of what some people would look over when it comes to serving someone close to you. That washing his wife's feet meant staying by her side for 13 years. And it is a great story of love, but it's also a great story of service and dedication and showing the Spirit of Christ in a very tangible way. And so the question for you is, to whom has God called you to wash their feet? At home, at work, and in your church? And are you being the servant that God's called you to be?